normally do this, but I just feel like we should. Would you all please just um, give a clap of praise to our worship team today? I just thought that was, uh, was outstanding, and thank you guys so much for, for being here today. All right. Well, while they're working on getting my slides up. Um, well, we've been in this series now called The Intentionally Great Family for a couple of weeks. And we've talked about, you know, how last, the last two weeks have been about how to bring out the best in kids. Um, and everybody else, other people as well. And so we kind of covered that, the five steps we talked about. Um, and so what I want to do today is I want to back up a little bit from that. And I want to look at the model of the kind of love that an intentionally great family needs. And more importantly, where that love comes from, okay? And, you know, really it's love that's not just for our immediate family, it's love for everyone. It's love for the, the greater family of God as well. And so I want to start off really by asking you a question. It's a rhetorical question. You do not have to answer out loud. But I want you to think about this question as I go through the message, all right? And the question is this. What does God think of you? What is God's opinion of you? So when God thinks of you, does he just shake his head and remember all of the dumb mistakes you've made and all the things you've done wrong? Or does he rejoice in the person that he's making you to become? When God thinks of you, does he only think about your past or does he think about your future? You see, how you answer those questions are going to profoundly impact how you see God. And how you see God is going to profoundly impact how you face God. See, if you see God as a harsh, disinterested judge, then you're going to face him with hopelessness. If you see God as a demanding taskmaster, then you're going to face him with fear. But if you see God as a loving father, then you have a choice to make. Will you face him with love and openness? Or will you turn and run? How you see God determines how you face him and a lot of that is dependent upon how you think God sees you. And so today I want to talk about how God sees us and what he thinks about when he looks at you and when he thinks of you. Because he thinks about you all the time. You're always on his mind. And I want to do that by looking at a, at a very familiar passage of scripture, at least probably familiar to most of us. We've, we've more often than not, probably all, heard the story that I'm going to talk about numerous times. Certainly I would venture to say that every one of us has heard the title that we've given to this story. Not the title that comes from Scripture, mind you, but the title we've given to the story. But today I want to look at what is a very familiar passage and maybe look at it in a way that is somewhat unfamiliar to us and to see what we could discover about the heart of God in looking at this story, all right? 
So the passage is from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And we know it, at least we've given it the title in most cases, as the story of the prodigal son. So it begins in verse 11 of uh, Luke 15. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, you may have heard this before, but essentially what this younger son is saying is, Dad, I really wish you were dead. Because I want what's coming to me, and I don't want to wait. I want it now. And I want you out of my life. That's what he's saying to his father. Not many days later, the younger son had gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and, bring, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, as I said, most of us have probably heard that story before. And, and like I said, we have a name for it. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. Now, one of the things that I, I find interesting, if you really stop, oop, I think I missed one. There we go. One of the things that's always interested me is the parable's name, right? Perhaps you also have realized that nowhere in that story, nowhere in the text anywhere, nowhere in any translation, nowhere in the original Greek, nowhere does it call this boy a prodigal. It's not there. We just read it. <laughs> it's not there. So where does it come from? Why do we call this kid the prodigal son? And what does prodigal mean anyway? Well, the reason I think that there's a common, the reason is that there is a common misunderstanding. We have a misunderstanding of what prodigal means. <coughs> we all, without really thinking about it, we tend to think that prodigal means lost or rebellious or wayward. You'll hear somebody in church maybe praying and say, hey, 
Would you pray for my son, pray for my daughter? They're a prodigal. But that's actually not what prodigal means. If you were to look it up in a dictionary, here is what the word prodigal actually means. Wastefully or recklessly extravagant. Giving or yielding profusely. Lavishly abundant. Profuse. So with that definition of prodigal in mind, and if we have to find a prodigal in this story somewhere, then who's the prodigal in this story? It's not the boy, because he's just an idiot doing stupid things, making bad choices, and yeah, he's wasteful. Of course he's wasteful. He's a party animal. The boy is not the prodigal. The father is the prodigal in the story because it's the father who is recklessly generous with his resources. He divided up the estate just because the boy asked him to. Remember how insulting the kid was when he asked. He didn't just say, hey, Dad, can I have a loan? It was, in effect, Dad, I wish you were dead. Please just give me my inheritance now so I can be, about, be on my way. And so just because the boy asked him to, he went ahead, divided up the estate. And then the father is lavishing his love on this boy, on this undeserving boy, as soon as he comes home, as soon as he even barely sees him on the horizon. And the story says that he then says to the servants, bring out the best robe, put sandals on his feet, put a ring on his finger. You know what that means? It means he's restoring his identity, his dignity, and his authority. You see, the robe, the best robe, is the robe that's given to the favorite child. That's his identity. And then he gives him back his dignity when he says, put sandals on his feet. And the reason he says that is because slaves went barefoot. And so he says, put sandals on his feet. This is not a slave. And then he gives him back his authority, which is what the ring is. See, the ring was like a signet ring that you would put into wax to seal a contract. He's giving this boy the authority to conduct the family business in the father's name. Dignity, identity, authority, and the father is pouring out, lavishing his love on this boy. The father is the prodigal in the story. And so is our Heavenly Father, because it's from Him that we get identity and dignity and authority. It's our Heavenly Father who lavishes His love on us, even though we don't deserve it. In fact, look at this verse from 1 John 3.1. It says, See what an incredible quality of love the Father has given, shown, or bestowed on us that we should be permitted to be named and called and counted the children of God, and so we are. He calls us his children. See, we can think of a million reasons why we should not be able to come home. We can think of a million reasons why God should be ashamed of us. Because we all know our own stories. We know our past. 
We know our present. We all know our weaknesses, our sins, our mistakes. We all know the distant countries that we've wandered off to. And see, the distant country in this story is really represented as any place that you go in your heart or your mind, some place that you don't want God to know where you are. Some place that you think the Father can't see you. So we all have our own distant countries. But God knows them. None of it's a surprise. He knows all of it, and yet, He loves you. Am I saying that sin is not important and that it doesn't matter to God? No, I am not saying that. It matters very much to Him because sin is what ends up separating us from God. That's what takes us away from home and drives us away from Him. But through Jesus, God made a way when there wasn't any other way. And that's the path that this boy has turned to walk on. So the Father has made a way for us to be forgiven and restored to God. God is the one who receives us. God is the one who makes us holy. I want to address, this is such a common misconception, and I hear it all the time. Here it is. This is what we tend to think. I've got to straighten up and change my life in order to come home. I have to behave a certain way. I have to stop doing this or that or the other thing before I can go back to church or before I can pray or before I can become a part of God's family. You see, we think we have to somehow clean up our act and start acting holy in order to come home, but that's not how it works. <laughs> Only God can make us holy, and he does that through the gift of his grace provided through Jesus Christ, his shed blood, his death, and his resurrection. That's what makes a way for us to be holy. Holiness is not what God wants from you. Holiness is what God wants for you. It's not your holiness that he's looking for. It's not whatever your idea of righteousness is. The Bible says that my idea of righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. It's his holiness in us, and he provides it through his grace, through Jesus Christ. And so what God is saying is, just come home. You don't have to change your life before you come home. I get that. When I talk to people, I get that all the time. Well, you know, I need to stop doing this, or I need to stop doing that. No. No. You don't. Just come home. We'll work on the other stuff later. Okay? Just come home. You don't make yourself holy by changing your behavior. God makes us holy. Makes us innocent by washing it all away. And see, then... It's with the help of the Holy Spirit, through the power of God's word, in fellowship with his people, then we begin the process of cooperating with God in the character change that is going to take place. 
we'll start living out what God is birthing in us. Becoming the people that he's always wanted us to be. It's then that we begin to change the way we think, change the way we live and act and respond. And we do it not because we're trying to earn something from God, but because we're doing it out of gratitude for his amazing grace and mercy. That's what changes our behavior. It's not the other way around. The truth that you don't change in order to be accepted, that truth that you don't change in order to be accepted by God, you're just accepted by him and then he'll work out the change in you. That's the truth that can have a huge impact on how you see yourself and on how we see other people who are not yet followers of Jesus. So let's see how this story plays itself out the rest of the way. Let's pick this up in verse 25. So the boy has, has been on his way home, the father's embraced him, and now we get introduced to the older brother. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours comes home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, just as an aside, you could observe that there are actually two characters in this story that are uh, profoundly unhappy when the son comes home. The older brother and the calf. <laughs> one, of the ones that I want you, one of the things that I want you to see in this story is that both of the sons were lost. They both saw themselves as slaves. The younger son is a rebel. You know, he's the one who's saying, well, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just let me to be one of your servants. The older son said, all these years I've been slaving for you. So he's got this self-righteous thing going on. Neither one of them understood who they were. The younger son may have been the one who left home, but the older son had never really been home to begin with. And yet the father went out looking for both of them. Here's what else I want us to see in this, and it's actually something that we don't see at all in the story. What we don't see is what happens next. We don't know if the younger son stuck around, 
We don't know if he changed his life. We don't know if he now behaves himself. We don't know if he actually stepped into the role that the father was offering him. We don't know if he cleaned up his act. We don't know what happens next. And maybe that's the point. It's because we never know what's going to happen next. And because of that, that we can't wait or hold back or withhold love and forgiveness from so-called sinners until we see how they're going to behave themselves. And, and it's because it's your love and your forgiveness that just might determine what happens next. See, the father didn't say, oh, sure, you can come back and be a servant. And, you know, if you change your life and prove yourself and you hang around for long enough, maybe work hard enough, um, perhaps then I will let you back in the family. That's not how he responded. It was an immediate acceptance. And there's something else that I want to look at back in verses 20 and, and 21. And I think it's something that is absolutely critical to understanding the Father's heart in this story. So let's look again at verse 20 and 21. It says this, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. First of all, let me ask you a question. Who do you know that might be a long way off and is finally coming to their senses? What are you filled with when you think about that person who is a long way off? You're filled with doubt? Anger, maybe? Or are you filled with hope? or with love and compassion like this father had. I want to read these verses again because I think it's really important that we get the order of things, the, the way it's presented in this story. Verse 20, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father saw him, ran to him, kissed him, and then the son said, I've sinned. Don't miss this. The kiss came before the confession. The father received this boy before he ever said a word. He embraced the boy while he was still dressed in his filthy rags. He didn't say, you should go clean up and then we'll talk. He embraced him, he kissed him. The kiss came before the confession. The Bible says this about this very principle. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us after we confessed. <laughs> while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
We don't change our lives in order to earn God's grace and forgiveness. We change our lives because we have been forgiven. And it's out of a sense of gratitude, not fear. We've already been received by him. If you think of the lost sons and daughters that you know, maybe people that you work with or neighbors, old friends, maybe even literally sons and daughters in your own family. But think of those who, who you know are in a distant country. They've run from home. They've run away from God. Maybe they're just now coming to their senses. Maybe they would love to come home, but they're ashamed to. Maybe they're ashamed to even try to come home. What would a lost son or daughter do if we respond with the prodigal love of the Father? What would a lost son or daughter do if we respond like the older brother? Because you can just imagine what the older brother would have said if he just happened to get to the kid first. Who do you think you are? What makes you think that you can come back? You don't belong here anymore. After all you've done and all the mistakes you've made and the way you hurt our dad and the way you went out and squandered everything and you, you ruined our family. What makes you think you belong in a place like this? Probably something like that is what it would have been said. And I think one of the reasons that people do not come home or that they don't come back to God, it's because they're afraid of his judgment. They haven't heard about his prodigal love. It's because of a fear of his judgment. But I also believe that a lot of people don't come home because they're afraid of our judgment. The rules and the regulations and, oh, you know, you're just not going to fit in around here anymore. They're afraid that they're going to be judged by all the older brothers in the church all the self-righteous people, and they're not going to be able to fit in and measure up. They're just afraid of all the hurdles that they have to jump over, hoops that they have to jump through, all the conditions that will be put on them, and so they just stay away, saying, oh, I'm not good enough. I heard the story, and it's a true story, of a woman who for years prayed for her husband to come to Christ. And when he finally came to his senses and began to turn his heart to the Lord, she became impossible to live with. She made so many demands on his life. Stop doing that. You have to stop doing this. You have to stay away from those people. You have to get into this program. And you have to be a part of this group and start doing these things. And just behave yourself. He's just trying to figure out where home is. And she's expecting him to behave himself like some wise old saint. The guy doesn't even know who Jesus is yet. He's just coming to his senses and he's trying to find out, okay, well, where is home? She was actually more unhappy as he was coming to Christ than she was before. Now get this. Finally, when he's away on a work trip, she cleans out the house and splits. She said it was irreconcilable differences. Well, of course they were different. She was behaving like the older brother. 
She pecked on him for every weakness, every mistake, until not only did she leave him, she chased him away from the church. She chased him away from the father, and it was absolutely infuriating because this man is just trying to hang on to God by his fingernails, and she was hanging on to all his sins with claws. And finally he just walked away, and he never did come home. See, we attract people to Jesus by attracting them to ourselves. Jesus doesn't call us to a, co to a code of behavior. He calls us to a relationship, to a friendship. He calls us to himself, and we attract other people to Jesus by attracting them to ourselves. If we're mean-spirited, judgmental, harsh, demanding, we're not going to attract anybody to Jesus. But if our lives are full of the prodigal love of God, a love that is patient and kind and humble and gentle and generous, a love that keeps no record of wrongs, a love that perseveres, if we're filled with that kind of love, and if they could see that love in our response, then maybe, just maybe, they will decide to taste and see if the Lord is good. Another pastor um, told this story. This is a fairly well-known pastor, and he was speaking at a Promise Keepers men's conference in Denver a number of years ago. 16,000 men at this conference. Starts on a Friday night and goes all day Saturday. And so he was preparing for his message, and he was off, you know, on the side of the stage, and uh, he, I guess he was the first speaker. And uh, so they started worship. And they started with an old hymn that night, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. I actually can remember, it wasn't at this conference, but I went to a conference that year because I remember that song. Because when I saw that that was going to be the song that Promise Keepers used that, that year, I was like, oh no. Because we sang that song in Catholic Church, and it was the draggiest, <laughs> dirgiest-like dirgiest song. Well, I should have known better, because the Maranatha band did it right. But anyway, so the song starts, and this pastor walks out from behind the stage. And he just wants to kind of get in the middle of it, you know, to be with the guys and to sort of see how they're connecting and worshiping and so forth. And so he walks out, and what he sees in the very front row is a man who's in his 50s, and seated right next to him is obviously his son who's in a wheelchair. And he said at first glance it was so dreadfully obvious that this boy was severely handicapped. He was paralyzed from the neck down. He was blind. He couldn't speak. This pastor later found out that he'd broken his neck playing football in high school. So there he is with his dad at this meeting and with, with 16,000 men. And worship starts and all of the men stand up to sing this song. Well, his father gets up out of his chair and he turns to his son and he puts his hands underneath that kid's arms and he picks him up out of the chair and he just kind of plops him on his feet in front of him. And he holds him there and he looks right into his face, this boy who couldn't even see that he was there. 
And he starts singing, singing that hymn, All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. And he's singing at the top of his lungs, singing to this boy. This kid, he couldn't even see his dad's face, but he could hear his voice. He could feel his touch. And as this dad is singing, this smile comes on this boy's face. A huge, beautiful smile. It was like watching the sun break through the clouds. And the men around him are now you know, reaching up and they're, they're supporting this boy. Because this is a full-grown teenager. All these guys are holding him, trying to support him. The son's smiling. This dad is singing. And all the men around him were crying. And it wasn't, you know, sweet, little, sentimental, isn't that nice tears. It was like the ugly snot bubbles kind of (laughs) crying. They were all a mess. Get that picture in your mind. A picture of that father singing over that son. And listen to this verse from the book of Zephaniah. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. In your mind's eye right now, you're seeing grace embracing brokenness. You're seeing joy triumph through tragedy. There was absolutely nothing that boy could do to make his dad proud of him. Nothing. The kid was helpless. But even though he was broken, he was beautiful in his father's eyes. In that son, I hope, I hope you see yourself. And I hope you see millions of other broken sons and daughters. And I hope you see that there is nothing that you can do to make your father proud of you. That's not why he loves you. The prodigal love of our father is lavished upon us regardless of what we can do for him. That's not what's important to God. God takes great delight in you and he rejoices over you with singing. So now I come back to the question that I asked at the beginning. What does God think of you? What's his opinion of you? How do you see him? If you see him as a loving heavenly father, then you have a decision to make. What do you do with a love like that? How do you respond to the prodigal love of God, the lavished, undeserved outpouring that offering of identity and dignity and authority, the forgiveness, the kiss that comes before the confession, how do you respond to a love like that? 
Well, you can choose to walk away from it, to ignore it, to say, oh, that's too good to be true, or that's for other people, not me. Or you can surrender. You can give yourself over. You can allow yourself to be loved by your Heavenly Father and let Him sing over you. It's your choice. You can come to your senses and come home. Or you can stay in your distant country. But either way, your Father loves you and He's waiting and watching for you to come back. All of us have a decision to make, and there might be some of you in this place that haven't made that decision yet. And I'm going to give you the opportunity right now to choose to come home. You're not coming home to the anger of God. You're coming home to the love of God. All you have to do is come to your senses and turn your heart over to him. And if you do, you'll find him running to you, embracing you and receiving you. And we're going to pray for this in just a moment. We're going to deal with it. But before we do, I'd like to address anybody in the room who maybe as you've heard this message, you actually relate more to the older son in the story. Maybe you're the one who's been too harsh and demanding. Maybe God is speaking to you through this story. He might be bringing some conviction into your heart. So let me ask you a question. Are you in some way standing between a lost son and the prodigal father? Are you blocking the way? Or are you showing the way? Guarding the door or opening the door? Pointing a finger of judgment or extending a hand of compassion? If God is speaking to you about how you see the lost ones in your life, then just take a minute and tell that to God. Confess it. Say, you know, I see that now. I've been wrong. And apologize. What you've got to do, say those words, and then ask Him to give you the Father's heart for the lost. But if you are seeing yourself more like the younger son, then today's the day for you to come home come to your senses, to turn from the distant country and to allow yourself to be embraced by the love of God. To let him sing over you and experience the joy that he has for you. And if that's you, then I want, you, uh, want to invite you to pray with me. And you don't have to say anything out loud. Just pray it in your heart. Just say it in your mind. So we're going to say this, if you would close your eyes. Heavenly Father, I want to come home. I have been in a distant country. I've run. 
I've been doing things on my own. And I do not want to do it that way anymore. I want to be part of your family. And I want to experience your unbelievable love for me. I want my dignity back. I want my identity back. I want my authority back. And I just want to tell you, even though I don't feel like I'm worthy to be called your son or your daughter, but I'm going to receive your gift of salvation right now. I'm going to receive your gift of forgiveness right now. All through Jesus. You have provided the way for that. And Lord, I don't understand all of it. I don't understand how this works. And I admit that I don't have to. All I need to do is know how desperately I need it. And so with all that I have and all that I am, and with all that I understand in this moment, I just open my heart to you. I come home to you. I ask you to receive me. I receive your gift of grace and forgiveness through Jesus. And I ask you, Father, to put me on a pathway of life that will partner me with you to live according to your purpose and your plan for my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to go into our, our ministry time now. And uh, as I said last week, and I want to maybe clarify, if I wasn't clear last week, that this is a time when we, we, we set aside to really experience God in the presence of the Holy Spirit. If that's something that you want, I just invite you to stay. If you need prayer for something, I invite you to stay. Maybe you're just curious about what this whole Holy Spirit thing means. If that's who you are, then I invite you to stay. None of those things apply to you. Then I just invite you to go across the hall and uh, spend some time in fellowship with, uh, with the others. And uh, also, please stick around. We are, Katie is here. I know she's sitting up over there. Um, and so you can go over there and check in with her and maybe begin the, uh, the process of, of recreating our picture. And again, I've sent out enough stuff, so you, surely you do know. But if you don't, we're recreating this little picture that's on our website, right? This, it's not little on our website. It's actually quite big. But we want to we recreate this picture with our own folks, right? This is a stock image, and so we want to have our own members as part of this picture. So that's why I was trying to insist as many people wear something bright and colorful today as, uh, as possible. And uh, y'all look good. <laughs> you did a nice job. Maybe we should just plan to do that every week. Um, so anyway, go across the hall, check in with Katie, and uh, see what she wants to do, and then the rest of us will be along shortly. So uh, I'm going to turn the lights off. God bless I'm going to just say a prayer of dismissal and then uh, we can continue. So, uh, Father God, for those who uh, need to go, Lord, I just pray a blessing over everyone in this congregation. 
I thank you for your love. Oh my gosh. A love that defies description. A love that that story can only begin to hint at. Father, help us to be more aware of that love. Help us to put aside the thoughts of judgment and duty and all of the things that that we tend to think are part of a relationship with you. Let us just focus on the, the tremendous love that you have for us. And if we do nothing more than sit in, that, in, your, in your presence and receive that love on a daily basis, then it's better than reading 10 devotionals. Just speak to us all about the great love that you have. Help it to become real in our lives. And as it does, help it to transform us from the inside out that you would give us the heart that you have for each other, for the lost, for the misfits of society. Thank you, Lord. I just pray an almighty blessing upon each person seated here. Touch them as they leave this place give you thanks and praise, honor and glory. And we ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.